Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Welcome to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, good to catch up with you. I'm sorry to see that uh, you've got, you well, got, right? you got a wing in a sling. Yes, I'm afraid so. It relates to Thanksgiving, though. I have been <laughs> up this weekend to Massachusetts with the Plymouth Rock Foundation. I'm chairman of the board of the foundation, and so we had our annual board meeting last Sunday night. And then I did some speaking as well, and I was in the reviewing stand in uniform, returning salutes at the parade. That they, they always have a magnificent Thanksgiving Day parade with military bands and so on. So, as a retired Air Force, they had me there saluting, returning salutes to people as they came by. And then Saturday night, I had a accident. I was walking in the dark and tripped over a curb that should not have been there. But it was, and anyway, so I landed squarely on my shoulder and found out this morning that it is a torn rotator cuff, so next week we'll decide what to do about that. They tell me the super glue is not an option, <laughs> and so surgery is one possibility, but not the only. We'll, we'll figure out what's going to happen on that, I guess. But anyway, so Sunday morning, I preached to a large Hispanic church in Boston, the first service in English, the second service in Spanish with an interpreter, and a Sunday school class in between. But anyway, so talking about Thanksgiving, we need to be thankful in all things. We need to understand that God has a plan, that God had a plan with the pilgrims, that they would spend that time in the Netherlands, and learn some things there, and then they would have that frightful crossing of the Atlantic, and then that terrible first winter with half of the population dying and so on, all of these things happening. But God had a reason. God had a reason for the storms that blew them off course because, as we're going to see, when they were blown off course, they were no longer under the control of the Virginia colony and they were free to establish their own system of government. And as I explained to them, God also had a reason for allowing me to take that fall on Saturday night. And all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We read in Romans 8.28. And so, as I told that congregation, I am thankful for that fall. And I said, I'm going to tell my congregation Wednesday night that I am thankful for that fall, but I have between now and Wednesday night to figure out why. <laughs> but the plain fact is, we don't need to know why. We need to trust that God has a reason that he allows things to happen and that they are for all our ultimate good, even when we don't understand the reason. Job certainly faced that when he had all his trials, not knowing that this was part of a conflict between God and Satan, a angelic conflict that Job knew nothing about. And throughout all of this, Job is saying, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And to know that God has a reason for these things happening is what we really need to know. The reasons are nice to know, but that's not essential. But 
Part of the reason helped me to realize what good friends I have up there in Plymouth to pick me up off the ground and get me to the emergency clinic and everything like that. And part of it, perhaps, was this reminder to a 77-year-old guy that maybe he needs to slow down a little bit. My wife tells me, look, John, you're 77. You're out walking at night in the woods by yourself, things like this. you got to be more careful. And God has just given you a wake-up call. And that's probably true as well. And hopefully I'll listen to it. But anyway, God is involved in all things. But that's what's behind the sling on the wing here. And hopefully I'll be good as new. When I tell you that I feel your pain, I really do feel your pain. I took a fall a couple months ago, dislocated my shoulder. Oh, you're dealing with some injury in the shoulder. Had too. to, yeah, had to go through the whole rigmarole. But, uh, but like you, I do agree. Things happen for a reason, and uh, um, you know we talk about divine providence. And I know you're going to be talking about Thanksgiving today, having been there, you know, at, at uh, Plymouth. Um, I'm excited to hear, you know, your take on on God's hand in uh, the pilgrims who came here and uh, and what they were able to accomplish with his help. Well, here's one of the most remarkable things about Plymouth, it seems to me, and that's that God has enabled us by, I think, a divine miracle to know what was going on at Plymouth. That very few civilizations do we have an accurate record from the very beginning. You know, we can go back hundreds, even thousands of years in England, but the early beginnings of English history are all shrouded in mist. Likewise, the Anglo-Saxons of Germany and most other civilizations. We know in Rome the story about Romulus and Remus, but how much of that may be true, we have no idea. Same is true in most other societies. But we have such a good record of what went on with the Plymouth Colony not only here, but what they were doing in England, and then what they were doing for the decade that they were in the Netherlands, and then back to England and coming to America, what happened on the ship, the landing, and so on. And we have this based upon a, just a wonderful, wonderful man, William Bradford, man who was orphaned at 12, but or rather at 9, and lived with relatives, but even though they disapproved, he would walk for miles to attend the pilgrim assembly because he believed that they were worshiping God as the Bible says he should be worshiped. And his leadership of the Plymouth colony throughout the years there, from 1621 to about the late 1650s, he was governor of that colony the entire time, except for five years when he chose not to be. But during this time, he kept a record of what was going on. And we call that record the history of Plymouth Plantation, which I have right here. It's a fascinating work and very well written. And here is the interesting thing about this. The reason we have this today is a divine miracle. This was not published until 250 years after it was written. And he didn't have it online. He didn't have carbon or Xerox copies of it. Rather, it was simply the Bradford manuscript. And when he died, he left it with his son, and there was a fire in the home of his son, and the manuscript was one of the few things that they managed to save. He left it with his son, Bradford's grandson, and 
there is a flood in his home. And again, the manuscript is one of the few things that survived. Then the manuscript was kept in the tower of the Old South Church in Boston. And when the British occupied the church during the war, made it into a livery stable, by the end of the war, the manuscript was missing. There were a few excerpts, quotations from it that the people had, but it was simply referred to when it was quoted as the Lost Bradford Manuscript. Until the mid to later 1800s. And then a church scholar in America was reading a work from England about the American church, and he found some quotations in that manuscript that were quoting from the Bradford Manuscript. But they were not the quotations that we had here in America. And so that led him to, him to suspect that maybe the manuscript is in England. Maybe one of those soldiers took it to England. There is some chain by which it may have gone from Massachusetts to Nova Scotia and from Nova Scotia to England. But in the late 1800s, there was a U.S. senator in Massachusetts. His name was George Hoare, H-O-A-R. And he developed almost an obsession that he was to find the Bradford Manuscript and bring it back where it belonged to Massachusetts. And so he went to England and searched around and determined that the manuscript was being kept by an Anglican bishop in his library. And he tried for days to get an appointment with the bishop, and the bishop would not see him. Finally, just shortly before he was to go back to the United States, he was there at the in a rather sullen mood, and he said to the innkeeper, the innkeeper said to him, what could I do to lighten your spirits, Senator? And he said, give me an appointment with the governor. Or, I, mean, I mean, with the archbishop. And the innkeeper said, the archbishop is my friend. He arranged the appointment, and the archbishop agreed to return the manuscript to America, and now it is not only published. There are a number of editions that have been printed. This one's by Vision Forum, but it is also available online as well. And I am convinced that God miraculously preserved the Bradford Manuscript, but if he did, he did so for a reason. And that reason must be that he wants us to read it, to learn from it, and to prosper from it, to profit from it. So let's talk a little bit about what we know about the Plymouth Colony, because most of what we know about it, we know from Bradford. Perhaps you ought to start by asking, who were these pilgrims, and what is a pilgrim? We think of a pilgrim as somebody who travels, but term is used in much deeper sense than that. In Hebrews 11, we read about Abraham, how he left Ur of the Chaldees and followed the Lord, going where he didn't know where he was going. But he searched for a city whose builder and maker is God. And we read that he and those with him confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And when the term pilgrim was applied to those that we call the pilgrims today, he was in the sense of what Abraham was talking about here, but a pilgrim is much more than just a traveler. You could be a rover around the world, but hardly a pilgrim. A pilgrim is one who travels with a mission in mind. We could also say he's a person who, wherever he goes, 
tries to be a good citizen, tries to be a good person, tries to make a contribution, just like the pilgrims did here in America, just like they had done in the Netherlands before. But they knew that the Netherlands was not really their home. They knew that England wasn't their home, that even America wasn't their home. They knew that their ultimate home was in heaven, and always their sights were on heaven. Well, why did they want to migrate out of England? Because they descended from some of the doctrines of the Church of England. They were staunch Calvinists. They were like the Puritans in many ways, emphasizing the sovereignty of God and the authority of the Holy Scriptures. But they believed that God was to be worshipped according to the Bible in ways that the English church was not doing. England, you recall, had a state church, and that the head of the state church was King George III. And his views of what the church ought to be doing were very different from those of the pilgrims. So the pilgrims tried to make some changes, but were not successful. And they had some people who were theologically quite akin to them in England. They were called the Puritans. The Puritans were so named because they wanted to purify the Church of England. Purify it not so much from its lifestyle, although some of that too, but primarily purify based on its doctrine. And anyway, so the pilgrims said, you're absolutely right about what's wrong with the Church of England. But as far as trying to purify them, that's a lost cause. They're not going to be purified. That's like trying to polish the brass rails on a ship like the Titanic. It's a sinking ship. What you need to do is you need to separate from it. And so they separated from the Church of England. And for this reason, they faced a great deal of persecution in England in ways that even the Puritans did not. So they realized that they would need to leave England. And first, they went to the Netherlands and lived in a town called Leiden in the Netherlands. And there they were active in civic affairs there in the seminary. Several of them were teaching there in the seminary. One was involved in book publisher. They were involved in the affairs of the day and so on. But they found over a decade of being in the Netherlands that there were some things there that they didn't go along with. The Netherlands practiced religious toleration, but at the same time, they were tolerant of a lot of immoral conduct, and the pilgrims were concerned that some of that was rubbing off on them, and particularly rubbing off on their children. And so they decided they needed to come to America. So they sent one of their number, John Carver, to go and negotiate with the Virginia Company. The Virginia Company was a group of, as they called them, adventurers, or that is, financial entrepreneurs who were setting up colonies in America. Particularly, they set up the Jamestown Colony in Virginia. And so they negotiated terms with the Virginia Colony that they would come and they would plant a colony in, as they said, the northern parts of Virginia. Now, we don't really know where the northern parts of Virginia were. There were no boundaries to Virginia at that time. In fact, 
they seemed to think they wanted to go somewhere in the vicinity of the Hudson River, which, of course, we would say today is New York. But some of the terms that they had to negotiate were pretty harsh on them. For example, a large amount of their income for the first few years had to go to the Virginia company, and that they had to hold all things in common, basically live a communal existence for those years, which they didn't want to do, but they had to based on the agreement, that they were under the governance of the Virginia colony and so on. But they agreed. So they came back to England and very shortly thereafter sailed to America on two ships, the Mayflower, of course, the other one was called the Speedwell, but the Speedwell had developed some leaks shortly after they left, and they determined, well, they're out here in the ocean, that those leaks are not repairable, and so they returned to England with the Speedwell and sold it for about half what they paid for it. And some of the passengers of the Speedwell then boarded the Mayflower, which meant the Mayflower was quite crowded, and some of them stayed behind for the time being. And so then they began their sailing and it was a lengthy journey. It was a rough journey in many ways, not only because the boat was crowded and it's a small boat and they're living in very, very cramped quarters, smelly and old food and so on. And anyway, two members on the ship died and of course, were buried at sea. There were also two who were born on the ship, too. The first of them was named Oceanus because he was born on the ocean. But anyway, they survived through some very difficult storms. They came ashore here in America. And after some 60 days, if I recall correctly, they. they sighted land there, and they had been blown to the north, and they found themselves off Cape Cod there in Massachusetts. Well, they knew this isn't Virginia anymore, but again, God had a purpose in blowing them off course. Because they were not in Virginia, they were not under the direct control of the Virginia colony, so they were free to draft their own covenant of government, which they did. And that covenant of government which they drafted before any of them set ashore, is called the Mayflower Compact. And the Mayflower Compact, some call it the first constitution of the United States. It begins with the words, in the name of God, amen. We use names that are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James by the grace of God, Great Britain, France, and Ireland King, defender of the faith, having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one of another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our bettering ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices, from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient. Notice several things out of this Mayflower Compact. First thing, 
They are under God. They are coming here in the name of God, in the presence of God, and for the glory of God, and for the advancement of the Christian faith. That's the purpose of the colony. Notice, secondly, that they combine themselves in covenant together into a civil body politic. The Mayflower Compact is that covenant. Now, the idea that people form a covenant, that they come together and form a covenant for government, where did they get that idea? Well, probably first people would say, oh, they probably got it from John Locke. John Locke is the author of social contract theory. No, they didn't get it from John Locke. John Locke was almost a century later. No, they would have derived these thoughts from their sojourn in the Netherlands. There in the Netherlands, particularly from the works of Hugo Grotius, the prime minister and theologian of the Calvinists in the Netherlands, and many of their concepts of government, they would have gotten from him. I don't think enough study has been done yet of what the Puritans or the Pilgrims contributed in the Netherlands and what they learned in the Netherlands and several very important lessons that they brought with them to America. We're going to see a lot more about these Pilgrims and these Puritans also. We'll talk some about them. But as we do, let's remember, first of all, that they have not only been given the authority here to create laws, to create a constitution, but they say that they're going to have just and equal laws. Just meaning subject to the higher law of God. Equal meaning fair to all concerned. And some of those who'd come over here as indentured servants were liberated from their indentured servitude as a result of the Mayflower Compact and what came from it. Let's see more about this after our break. Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We're learning a little bit about the pilgrims, learning a little bit about uh, the circumstances leading up to Thanksgiving. And I have to say, Colonel, I never realized the influence that uh, their time spent in the Netherlands had on uh, how they uh, conducted themselves and how they organized themselves before coming to the New World. It's fascinating to see all of this and there is so much that we can learn from the pilgrims. While I was up here, I was staying at a place that is called the Leiden House. And the Leiden House is of special significance because it is was built, it's old itself, but it was built over what was the first house built by the pilgrims in 1621. And a remarkable place, beautiful home. But anyway, I was there for five nights, and during my time that I was there, I contemplated a great deal, but one of the things that I think we need to remember about the pilgrims is that 
when they came over here, they were now free to set up their own government. And they did so. But they were still under some authority from the Virginia, Com the, the Virginia Company because the Virginia Company required that they have all things in common because they had to be able to pay back their debt to the Virginia Company. You know, the Virginia Company basically financed the expedition for them so they could get over here. But they didn't do so because they were charitable. They did so because they saw this as a way of making a profit in the new world without having to come over here themselves. And so the Pilgrims were to keep their things together. They were not to profit themselves from their labors, but for those first years, everything was to be held in common and the profits were to go back to the Virginia Company. Now, even though they no longer have to follow their laws, they still have to pay back their debt. And so for those first years, they hold all things in common. But they find it simply doesn't work. And I love particularly the way William Bradford describes it. And Bradford, as he's speaking about their experience in America, talks about how as they, they just were not profiting, things were not working out well, People were not working, people were lazy, and it just wasn't working. It was resulting in starvation, it was resulting in scarcity, it was resulting in disease, and it was resulting in death. And so here's what Bradford says. He says, basically, so we rejected socialism, we rejected communism, and we went to capitalism instead. Just read you a portion from Bradford in the history of Plymouth Plantation. He says, so they began to consider how to raise more corn and obtain a better crop than they had done so that they might not continue to endure the misery of want. At length, after much debate, the governor, with the advice of the chief among them, allowed each man to plant corn for his own household and to trust themselves for that in all other things to go in in the general way as before. So every family was assigned a parcel of land according to the proportion of the number that was in view for the present purposes only and making no division for inheritance, all boys and children being included under one family. This was very successful. It made all hands very industrious so that was much, much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means the governor or any other could devise and saved him a greater deal of trouble and gave far better satisfaction. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to plant corn, while before they would allege weakness and inability and to have compelled them would have been thought great tyranny and oppression. What's happening here? Now that we put in a profit motive, people are willingly going to the fields and working, something they were not willing to do before. Before, if you're going to get the same amount of money, whether you work or not, people just don't work. We found that today with the results of COVID. People don't work if you're paying them not to work. And that was exactly what was going on there. Bradford said this didn't work. So we tried free enterprise, let each person have his own parcel to work and keep the profits of your work. 
And now people are willing to work. The women go willingly into the fields to plant. More grain gets planted. More grain gets harvested. That's just human nature. God has implanted something in human nature so that we are willing to work to profit ourselves and to profit those close to us, our family, and so on. But we're not less than that willing to work to benefit other people and people that aren't working themselves or to benefit society as a whole. That's why communism fails everywhere it's tried. That's why you see mass starvation, mass crop failure year after year in the Soviet Union, because this system just doesn't work because it's not based on a realistic view of what people are like. And you could have the commissar there in Russia come out to the communes and give a rousing lecture about the need to work hard to build the socialist motherland, and that might fire the workers up for a half hour or so. But to get people to produce in the long run, you need the profit motive that free enterprise supplies. That's just the way human nature is. And so Bradford says, the failure of this experiment of communal service, which was tried for several years and by good and honest men, proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato and other ancients, applauded by some of later times. Plato in his Republic talks about a Atlantis and so on, the idea of people sharing everything in common. Plato didn't have a concept of original sin, and so he didn't realize that that just simply wasn't going to work. Thomas More and his Utopia and others talked about the same thing, but it just doesn't work. That the taking away of private property and the possession of it in community by a commonwealth would make a state happy and flourishing, as if they were wiser than God. For in this instance, community of property, so far as it went, was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment, which would have been to the general benefit and comfort. Bradford is simply saying, socialism doesn't work. And that's what we found. And that's what has been true in the American experience as well. It's been true in Europe. It's been true everywhere it's been tried. Socialism doesn't work because it's based on a false view of God's laws, which endorse private property, and because it is based on an unrealistic view of human nature. Now, one of the things I mentioned staying there at the Leiden House, one of the significances of the Leiden House is you, I can look out my bedroom window and I can see Plymouth Harbor. I can see the area where the Mayflower would have come in and landed just out of view is where the replica of the Mayflower, the ship is. The original ship is not there, but a replica. Plymouth Rock is there, and Plymouth Rock is nowhere near as big as most people think it is. It's pretty small, but it's there, and it is important. There is a sarcophagus or tomb there, a large case, in which are the bones of many of those pilgrims that died in that first winter, they would not bury them in that first winter because they didn't want the Indians to know how weak they had become. Anyway, so one of the interesting things is that 
on that front lawn in front of the Leiden house where I was staying is where it is believed that the treaty was entered into between the pilgrims and Massasoit, who was the of the Wampanoag and a very good friend of the pilgrims. This was a peace treaty that they entered into. And it was a peace treaty that was preserved and preserved peace between Pilgrim and Wampanoag for over 50 years. It's been said that that has been kept the longest of any treaty the United States has ever entered into in all its history. Yes, there were some cruel things that happened, and the Pilgrims were not perfect people. Their own theology would tell you that. As Calvinists, they believed in the total depravity of human nature, including themselves. But they recognized that they were there on a mission from God as pilgrims. A mission from God that included a recognition of his higher law. They would implement his higher law as they would have their general court. And what they called the general court was really a legislature and the laws of Massachusetts adopted in 1630 provide certain capital offenses, 1641 is the year actually, that are taken almost word for word out of Deuteronomy, section one of chapter, article 94, for example, if any man after legal conviction shall have or worship any other God but the Lord God, he shall be put to death. Two, if any men or women be a witch, that is, hath or consulteth with a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death. Three, if any men shall blaspheme in the name of God, the Father, Son, or Holy Ghost, with direct, express, presumptuous, or high-handed blasphemy, or shall curse God in like manner, they shall be put to death. Pretty strong. Interestingly enough, among the Puritans, they also used God. God's law as a means of protecting the innocent. You know, as we've seen as we look to God's laws, there are protections of the individual and protections against a false accusation that everything has to be done with two or three witnesses and so on, and many other things for their protection. There was one case among the Puritans where a couple was taken in adultery, and they insisted that well, they had been in bed together, they had not actually engaged in any physical acts, and well, they were skeptical of this, nevertheless, two or three witnesses, they didn't have that. Here is what they did, and this is pretty remarkable. Whereupon the case seemed doubtful to the jury, they judged it safest in the case of life to find as they did. So they didn't execute. Rather, the court adjudged them to stand upon the ladder in the place of execution with nooses around their necks for one hour and then to be whipped or pay $20 fine, 20 pound fine. I think the next time they were tempted, they'd be thinking about that noose around their necks. Pretty effective. Anyway, you think about that first Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, that is in part as a result of this peace treaty. But after they've had a better harvest, they determined to give thanks to God. Now, this isn't the first Thanksgiving in the Western world. The Native Americans throughout the East Coast had regular feasts of Thanksgiving at harvest time to their great spirit. The 
Jamestown settlers had Thanksgiving feasts going back at least as far as 1619, a year before the pilgrims landed. Coronado and the Spanish settlers in the West, or explorers in the West, had a service and feast of Thanksgiving. So the idea of Thanksgiving to God, especially at harvest time, is certainly nothing that is new to the pilgrims of this time, but they initiated it nevertheless. And they invited the natives to come with them, to join with them in this celebration. Now, some have tried to portray this as though this was a act of bullying the natives into submission here. Let's think about that just a moment. You had 90 Wampanoag braves that came to this feast. These are big, strong men armed with their bows and arrows and tomahawks, which they show off their skill for. For the pilgrims, the pilgrims had about 100 when they first came. About half of those had died in that first winter. So they're down to about 50, many of whom are old men and women and children, some of whom are sick. And they're bullying these 90 Wapanak? No, not very likely. But they have this feast together. Celebration to God. And thanks to God for what he has brought them here. Now, they didn't know exactly where God was leading them. But, and I don't mean to suggest here that everything worked out perfectly. Certainly it did not. But what you need to think about with all of this is the way God had worked. And I'm thinking about that 50-year peace treaty. And with that peace treaty, what I'm remembering here is King Arthur, remember one shining moment, shining moment there, the Knights of the Round Table. This is what we see in Plymouth, a shining moment, not to last forever. Things on earth don't. But one thing you'll see in Plymouth is the Forefathers Monument dedicated to them. And on the west side of the monument, there is a description from William Bradford's History of Plymouth Plantation. And it's facing west significantly, although, as though this is Bradford and the Pilgrims speaking to the entire American nation. Here are these words. Thus out of small beginnings, greater things have grown by his hand who made all things out of nothing and gives being to all things that are. And as one candle may light a thousand, so the light enkindled here is shown to many, yea, in a sense, our whole nation. Let the glorious name of Jehovah have all the praise. Let that be the theme of the pilgrims. And I suggest to our listeners that as they celebrate this Thanksgiving, celebrate with a truly grateful heart, a humble heart. You can't be thankful if you're humble or if you're proud, because if you're proud, you think everything you have is less than what you really deserve. Humility is essential for Thanksgiving. But think about this first Thanksgiving. Think about how God worked and how so much of what we see in America today comes from these seeds that were sown by these pilgrims way back 400 plus years ago.
I'm trying to imagine the courage that it took for them to to set out on that journey with no guarantees. You know that you you mentioned you know that sense of entitlement of well I deserve this and I they had none of that. They're, the only the only thing they knew for sure is that uh, it was going to be risky. It was going to be hard. There was a very good chance they could die at sea, and yet uh, still they came. And I, I wonder where that uh, that spirit is today that uh, that would drive people to to undertake truly difficult things. Uh, you know, for for a higher purpose. This wasn't just about we're going to come and make lots of money and get rich. They, I think they really felt that uh, this was something that they needed to do, no matter how hard it was, they were committed. Absolutely. And it's interesting, as you look to those pilgrims, they never became wealthy. Half of that colony died the first winter. The rest muddled on. You go through the burial cemetery there on the hill above where I was staying and see these ragged, rocky graves and so on. Graves with names like Ebenezer and Ichabod and women's names like Mercy and Faith and Temperance. Names that seem strange today, but didn't seem strange to them because they lived with the biblical worldview. And you think about these people and you think, they never became wealthy. They never became militarily or politically powerful. By the human standards, they were failures, but they succeeded in this. They kept their covenant with God. And I would pray that future generations could say the same of us. Absolutely. I just wonder what, uh, what if any, challenges or, or um, for that matter, opportunities, maybe opportunities, the better word, because uh, you know, they, they took that they took what was a difficulty and turned it into an opportunity, not just for them, but for lots of people who followed. I wonder if we have something similar in our time that that could even begin to compare. Well, I look at schools around this country, little Christian schools that are established, little Christian colleges, and so on, and smaller than the Mayflower Colony, and yet. From small beginnings, as Bradford said, a light can be spread throughout the whole world. And so hopefully we can be doing the same here. Hopefully with this broadcast that we have here, we are lighting candles. We are kindling lights that will shine forth, that will, the message will be spread and transform this nation, transform this continent. So what's the one thing that we're going to have to have in common with uh, those uh, those pilgrim forebears, faith in God. Faith in God is the number one. With it, a willingness to sacrifice and risk the things on earth, because there's something much more important for us in heaven. Yep, I would I would completely agree. So, if people want to uh, if people want to to really learn more about. The pilgrims. I know Thanksgiving is is one of the holidays. It's one of it's one of the many things that's under attack right now. Pulling down statues, renaming schools, renaming streets because everything that came before us was apparently wrong. And and Thanksgiving, I know there's there are some false teachings that are starting to crop up. But for people who are serious about really understanding what it was that drove these people, could you mention again, please, the the volume that that you held up earlier in in, in this episode 
um, that people could read for themselves if they want to. They want to see what the the pilgrims were thinking. They yes, they don't have to take somebody's word. Of, of Plymouth of Plymouth Plantation, William Bradford, and I might add too, one place you can get that is through the Plymouth Rock Foundation. If you go to the foundation's website, there, Plymouth Rock P L Y M R O C K dot org. But if you just say Plymouth Rock Foundation, you'll find us. Or there are a couple other groups there, the Jenny Museum, the Leiden, L-E-Y-D-E-N, Preservation Group, and so on. All of these are working hard to preserve the heritage of the pilgrims, which, as you know, is under attack today. And we are countering the 1619 Project, which maybe we can talk about that next week, but we are countering that with the 1620 Project that we're working on that will show that Mary's true founding was here at Plymouth, not with the 1619 thing. But yes, there's a lot of things going on here. But those are a few places I'd suggest turning. If you want to know about ways that we can be working to defend our liberties today, I'd again suggest to go to the website of the Foundation for Moral Law, morallaw.org. Thank you.